All right, welcome back. As promised, about two weeks later, uh, Nathan and I are here again for a fun conversation. Um, fun is maybe not the best word for it, but a conversation on uh, government shutdown. And one thing we didn't tell with you in the didn't say to you in the teaser is that we were able to track down an even better expert than Nathan and I on this particular topic. Um, so today we have with us William uh, G. Resch, who we know is Bill. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. I believe so, um, at least uh, longest in recent memory. Uh, it was 35 days in total, uh, meaning two paychecks uh, that were suspended, uh, basically, uh, for that time period, plus add a week. And so um, in total, we had federal employees that were not paid for 42 days. That was 800,000 federal employees, so not the entire uh, workforce. And of those 800,000, not, not the entire 800,000 were shut out from actually working. So there were some quote unquote essential employees who were expected to be on the job, however, not getting paid. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I talked about in the piece, and I'm happy to go into uh, a little bit more detail in this conversation. Uh, you know, estimates, uh, even conservative, and I would say the most conservative estimate of the number of contract employees uh, that were affected by the shutdown would be about a two to one ratio. So add another 1.6 million uh, employees who were in contracts that would be affected by the government shutdown as well. Um, you mean in terms of the effects? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah, so there's a ton of agencies that, uh, for instance, uh, generate revenue, right? And so they, you know, they, uh, they're funded basically through their fee uh, processing or, or through through other types of sources, right? So, for instance, uh, USCIS, Customs and uh, Immigration Services, uh, they they are a fee-based agency. 
And so, uh, for instance, my wife, she's, she has a green card. So she applies for that green card and she pays, you know, several hundred dollars for the application. fee. Well, that, that money is you know, used as revenue for the agencies to continue without any interruption, basically. And then, of course, there are defense and security related agencies that don't shut down that are that are, are well funded. Uh, you know, this was only part of a, a part of one continuing resolution. So it was like part of government that was non-defense related. Uh, a lot of independent agencies were uh, basically completely unfunded. Um, I think F the the FCC was uh, 99.7%, you know, shut down. Um, EPA was, I think, 90, 95% shut down. Um, EPA isn't you know, exactly an independent agency, but uh, but one of the agencies that was affected in total. Uh, other agencies, such as the Department of Homeland Security, was largely affected, but not, not completely shut down. TSA, obviously, a lot of essential employees and people that had to show up for work, but they weren't getting paid. Um, yeah, but the, in terms of the effects, well, the big difference, obviously, is like some people weren't paid for 42 days where others were, right? Um, and then the idea is, you know, what type of effect does that have, right? And so, um, you know, we can think of most of the people I know, at any rate, and I'm not, I don't know where you guys stand, uh, but I think uh, a lot of us have friends uh, who live paycheck to paycheck, right? On a monthly basis. And um, frankly, it takes a lot of money uh, to not be on a month to month basis. And so a lot of these federal employees are not making the type of money where they can smooth consumption comfortably uh, just out of their savings, right? Uh, many have to take a break from paying credit cards or, or uh, skip a month's mortgage or, uh, or, you know, borrow from their credit cards substantially, right? Which leads to kind of, you know, having to pay for that interest and so on and so forth, right? And there's been evidence from the public economics uh, literature that showed that during the 2013 uh, shutdown, which was shorter, it was, you guys can correct me, I think it was like 20 days, 21 days. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't remember. Okay, so it was only 16 days, but they still show that there was, uh, yeah, um, smoothing behavior by, by federal employees in terms of borrowing from credit cards or missing a mortgage payment or so on and so forth, or uh, not missing, but paying late, right? and incurring the fees that come with late payments. And so you can imagine there's a, quite a lot of federal workers that don't have the savings necessary to be able to smooth that consumption. And so then you have to think, you know, what are the attractions to federal service, to government service generally, right? And you guys are, are well uh, versed in, in the evidence here, right? We all kind of uh, somehow in, in public management or public administration, we we study motivations one way or another in terms of work motivation. And so we know that, you know, of course, that people go into public service out of a sense of duty or, or you know, what we refer to as public service motivation or pro-social motivation, right? But, you know, that's only one, one aspect of a whole portfolio of different motivations as to why you would enter government service, right? Uh, one of another predominant one is uh, job stability, right? Um, relative stability in terms of knowing that, you know, that not much is going to affect your status in life, um, you know, in terms of ex ex exogenous shocks to the system, right? But here we have almost an endogenous shock, right? That that the system itself has shocked itself into the sense that, you know, uh, employees who uh, enter into service with the idea that there will be job stability. It's it's their very employers who are, um, you know, upsetting that that equilibrium. And uh, and then if that's the case, then how much can they trust that this won't happen in the future? And so, 
know what's going to happen. Well, you know, the evidence is, is that, you know, not much is going to happen generally uh, in terms of the labor market. Uh, you know, there's still in, in terms of the general uh, federal service, you know, they're overpaid uh, uh, compared to their private counterparts in the lower, uh, you know, middle management and below, right? that the most kind of skilled positions and in, in the executive ranks as well, uh, where we have, uh, where actually, you know, public employees, uh, specifically federal government employees are, are actually substantially underpaid compared to their private counterparts, right? And so that's where these motivations of job stability, public service motivation, and other types of motivations, especially like identity, you know, like job identity, um, uh, uh, mission match, that is how much they, they, they're oriented to the mission of the organization, right? That's where these types of things, you know, kind of subsidize for that underpayment, right? But if, but if we're undermining or if the political class is undermining that job stability, then we're, then we're in trouble a bit, right? Uh, because those people who have a market outside of the public sector that is viable in terms of the skills that they have, uh, then, you know, shocks like this are likely to kind of undermine their willingness to stay in public service and go to the private sector in lieu of the instability that the political class is introducing to this quote-unquote contract between, you know, politicians and bureaucrats, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, well, you know, frankly, uh, if we're relying on scholarship, we know uh, very little about uh, recruitment and hiring at the federal level and also in comparison to the local and state level. Uh, researchers have, you know, we do what, what most, you know, what, what is human nature, right? So we go where there is data, right? And there is data available uh, traditionally within uh, public management or bureaucratic politics of those interested in, in these types of issues on turnover, right? So we know about turnover intention, we know about actual turnover, but we don't uh, know very much about hiring. So um, I, I, we're starting uh, to build some relationships with uh, some people at OPM, specifically at, um, at usajobs.gov, which uh, hopefully we'll have some answers to some of this uh, in the next year or two. But um, we just don't know how these types of, you know, kind of uh, these types of political shocks, right? That the political climate, how it affects recruitment, right? So we know that uh, the labor market, you know, is going to dictate to some extent, right? But what does the political quote unquote market do? in terms of the viability of government work, right? Um, I, I don't know about compared to state or local governments. I mean, uh, you know, I, I also think that there's a, you know, that 
market's going to kind of determine some of that, right? So uh, you might see it a little less at Texas A&M uh, in a kind of urban dense uh, kind of environment like USC. I actually have a lot of students who are interested in local government and also in, uh, in state government. Um, and probably more so than federal government, right? And, and, you know, this is maybe a function of what we see in uh, kind of opinion polling or, or kind of, uh, yeah, general political behavior that people trust their local and state governments a lot more than they do the federal government. So maybe that also translates to, you know, job selection, right? Career selection. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to say is I think, too, with with some of this, uh, it's, it's important to talk a little bit about the backdrop that especially certain agencies have had a lot of trouble recruiting, is my impression, it, particularly recruiting really talented and especially young people into um, the federal service. service. Again, I'm not quite as familiar with state and local, um, but I know that like there's been a lot of experts who have sort of raised concerns about the inability of the government, especially to attract really talented young tech people on yeah. issues like cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the IRS has had a really hard time attracting young people to help, yeah. you know, process our taxes and make sure that people are actually paying taxes and those sorts of things. And so I think um, you know, if we were at a healthy place in some of these agencies, and then we had, you know, this this shock of, um, you know, shutdowns, that would be one thing. But we've got certain agencies that I think have already been struggling, and this is just sort of one more, you know, rock that we're adding to the pile or whatever that's sort of making it it difficult for them to get the the talent they need. Um, and of course, the other piece of this is that there's a lot of baby boomers who are working in federal government who are about to retire, which is part of why it is so important to find those those younger um, workers who can replace them, um, because there, there's a lot of hiring, is my impression, that the federal the government is going to need to do over the coming um, yeah. decade or so. So, so uh, Nathan brings up a ton of good points here, right? So, um, uh, like over fifty percent of our senior executive service is retirement eligible, right? And we've been talking about, uh, you know, this quote-unquote quiet crisis uh, of looming retirements in the federal government since the nineteen eighties, actually. Um, and we haven't seen the mass exodus that uh, some people have expected. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. And one is frankly, that we don't have the talent available to replace the existing talent, right? But then what does that mean in terms of, well, still, why don't then the other people can still exit, right? But I think that especially at the executive levels that, you know, people have built their careers around programs about around, you know, uh, public service uh, in, in very kind of uh, specific ways, right? And they and that and they build a legacy, right? Attached to that program, and they want to protect that legacy. And they've, you know, and they've invested their entire career towards that, uh, towards a given program, right? So there's that, right? So that's why I don't think we see like, you know, as rapid of exit as you know we might expect in some agencies. Nathan brings up another point about skills gaps that we have in. Uh, the federal government and the inability to kind of fill those gaps. So uh, we've, you know, first of all, I should say overall strategic kind of human capital planning has been at the top of GAO's high risk list since 2001, right? Um, skills gaps uh, in particular areas such as STEM uh, and and I, I, I include IT in that uh, STEM occupation, right? So STEM being science, technology, engineering, yeah. and math? And math, yeah. 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 Right. So, uh, so in STEM occupations, uh, there's been a serious skills gap. There's been a serious skills gap uh, identified by GAO on their high-risk list in uh, personnel management <laughs> and also in auditing, that is uh, things like contract management, right? And so you can imagine that uh, you know this 
this uh, has been going on for some time, but uh, then where are the needs? And uh, as he identified, like for instance, the IRS, if you're in an agency that's been bashed repeatedly for a consistent amount of time, you can imagine how unattractive it is to enter that agency. So yeah, there's uh, there's some real problems that need to be addressed, and frankly, the boomers are going to leave soon, and and I'm you know I, that's not a bad thing. Um, the problem is, you know, are we going to be able to replace them? Uh, I think that we won't have any problem replacing middle management ranks below, right? It, the the question is, where are we going to get? Uh, talented or, or the talent necessary to fill leadership positions. Uh, I just don't see it existing currently uh, in this political environment. And all this does, all these shutdowns do or exacerbate uh, those you know, needs. And that's why I was saying in the article that it's worse than you think, because you, know, you think, I, I don't care how pro or anti-government generally you are, if you have an anti-bias, right, towards governments, I mean, the presumption would be that uh, that you want it run better, right? And if, uh, and if the talent is, you know, it doesn't mean that it needs to be more robust or more like, you know, invasive, but it needs to be run better, just qualitatively better, right? And if you're, you know, uh, kneecapping the ability to get talent that could run it better, then, you know, this is problematic no matter your ideological proclivities. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we have more uh, vacancies and appointed positions and Senate confirmed appointment appointed positions than any presidency previous to this one, uh, at least in the modern you know, in the modern age. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, in some respects, it, I mean, it really depends on an agency to agency basis, right? And so, uh, I mean, currently you have an acting, uh, yeah, Secretary of Defense. This is the longest acting uh, Secretary of Defense that we've had in my memory. Um, typically, this position is uh, quickly transitioned, uh, as a, you know, as a matter of you know concern for national security generally, right? Um, you know, acting officials, uh, you know, have traditionally not been as problematic as some have been concerned with, right? So because a lot of acting officials have been picked from the career ranks in, and uh, from, uh, specifically from the senior executive service ranks. So these are people with a ton of institutional knowledge and, and memory. Um, the, the, maybe the only uh, concern or the, I would say the major concern of having an acting official from the career ranks in place for, you know, um, for a sustained period of time is that they're going to tend to be risk averse because eventually there will be a, an appointee that comes in and has particular preferences and if they've paved a different direction for the agency, uh, out of their acting status, then you know their their role might be severely diminished thereafter, right? So they want to you know kind of you know 
stay straight and steady, you know, and uh, and just be a trustee in many respects and not uh, advance any kind of like policy in uh, by any entrepreneurial means, right? So that's 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 been maybe the most major concern of having actings. However, the actings have never been used like they're currently being used as as kind of uh, egregiously at any rate, um, where instead of a career senior executive being in place, uh, these actings are typically unilateral appointments from the lower ranks. So that would be somebody that was uh, appointed by the president without Senate confirmation into what they call either a Schedule C position or a non-career senior executive service position, right? And so then, or it was someone who was confirmed at a deputy level, right? Um, but there wasn't as much concern by Congress over their, you know, uh, you know, not as much vetting as there would be for a secretary as opposed to a deputy, right? With the idea that, you know, they won't have the same responsibilities, but then they're thrust into a role with these responsibilities and our president has said that he prefers this, that he likes the flexibility, quote unquote, of you know having actings in place you know our president is largely a transactional kind of leader right he only uh, you know kind of thinks of short-term transactions it seems and and so uh for the purpose of short-term transactions he's actually probably quite correct in that it provides him a lot of flexibility however in terms of the long-term uh you know uh yeah in terms of long-term objectives either for the country generally or for this administration i think that he's frankly entirely short-sighted and this is not a very effective strategy and it's going to have spillover effects uh to which you uh kind of allude in terms of our ability to like have a functioning government generally in the long term because it's going to affect human capital right uh, appointees themselves already, they only have a, a, a tenure, an average tenure of about two years, right? And so they come into organizations not particularly concerned about long-term strategies. They're, they're, they come in, typically an appointee is appointed or, or, or chosen for that position because they've been representative of a, of a given policy interest right um, and they build a lot of expertise in a specific kind of policy domain right but when you enter something like you know a, a large department that has aegis over a ton of different policies right the appointee comes in for that two-year tenure and says well I'm going to focus on what I know and and ha has pretty narrow focus and lets the rest of the organization kind of go uh, you know, on autopilot in many respects, right? And and tries to build their legacy by changing a, a, a you know a pretty salient policy to them and to their you know constituents within that two-year period, right? So already there wasn't long-term human capital kind of uh, strategic management, right? Uh, but you know, uh, I know we've used the word, but uh, you know, having actings that are unilateral appointees who are there completely on a transactional basis, uh, then yeah, you're going to exacerbate that problem even more, right? Yeah. So I think, um, and one one thought that, that comes to mind for me is that when we are thinking about, you know, this ability to be able to attract talented people into the, you know, the federal government, I mean, we talked about sort of the the toll that unpredictability and missed paychecks and that kind of thing from a shutdown can cause on people. But I think, you know, just as important to a lot of people in the bureaucracy or working for federal government is being able to feel like they have the opportunity to, to have that impact on the public that they want to have to be able yeah. to somehow serve society. And one of the things I worry about too, I mean, both with the lack of appointees and with the federal government shutdown is that those are the kinds of things that can make these employees feel like it doesn't actually matter if I'm here in this job because this organization is so dysfunctional that I'm not able to 
impact society in that positive way that I want to. And one example that comes to mind is shortly after um, the, the, the current administration um, came in, um, I was talking to a, a friend, I live out here in Washington, D.C., so I meet lots of people working in, in federal government. I mean, certainly there's federal government workers all over the country, and I think, it, what is it, maybe 10% of them work out here in Washington, D.C.? Is that figure about yeah, right? Uh, there, you know? Actually, no, it's about uh, 20, 27% are in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Okay, okay. But, but so still, it, uh, that's not, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and to think like federal bureaucrat, they're in D.C., right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I, I don't want to, you know, misstate, but it, I guess it's a little bit denser out here. Right. So you meet lots yeah, of federal true. bureaucrats when you live out here. And um, and so at any okay, rate, we don't use that word pejoratively. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we love our bureaucrats. Yes, yes. So at any rate, um, this woman, I mean, she she went to one of the top PA schools in the country um, and she works for the Office of Management and Budget um, and is exactly the kind of person you want working in the federal government. You know, young person, very nonpartisan and just wants to help the the current administration have the evidence that they need to be able to make good decisions in line with their values to, to run the government the way that they want to. And this woman I was speaking to, she was so frustrated because she was like, we just need an appointee. We just need someone to tell us what to do. Like we're all there at our job. We're ready to work. You know, we might not have voted for this administration. We might've voted for them, but we just want to work for them. And there's no one at the helm to tell us what to work on. And so we can't do anything. Um, to, to help this administration. And I think that sometimes, I mean, maybe the case of having, um, you know, some of these acting, you know, positions maybe aren't quite that severe where they are giving some direction. Um, but the, the sense of, you know, everything's very temporary and tentative and we don't know what we're actually trying to accomplish in the long term because this, you know, acting secretary or whatever could be replaced at any time, I think makes it really, difficult to to feel like you're able to have a well-functioning organization that you're a part of. And in the same way, I think having, you know, a shutdown, I mean, if, if any other organization, you know, any other that you worked at just shut down unexpectedly for a month, right? They miss a tenth of the year, essentially, um, unexpectedly, unplanned, because, you know, something went wrong with the budget at the last minute. Is that the kind of organization that you want to work in that's going to be able to, you know, accomplish yeah, the good in the world that you want to accomplish? I mean, that's that's a really hard work environment to be in. Well, yeah, and you're right. And it also, uh, you know, should uh, or presumably has, um, you know, impacts on recruitment, right? Um, you know, I was talking with Paul Light recently and he said, you know, Bill, it's recruit. It, it is recruitment season. This is right now. You know, uh, December, January, February. This is when college students who are graduating are like, "Where am I going to work?" Right? I need to look for a job, right? And traditionally, this is when most of the applications are coming in the pipeline, right? And I would be interested to see, you know, what's happening. Uh, and you're also right in terms of when an organization is debilitated in terms of reaching its mission or trying to attain its mission, you know, what are the impacts on that? Uh, I, I have uh, anecdotal evidence from when I worked at SPIA. So uh, before I was at USC, I was at Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs, affectionately known as SPIA. So um, when I was at SPIA, obviously with environmental affairs, we have a lot of uh, talented students who are coming out of there in environmental management and environmental policy. And so EPA for both its, you know, uh, for both its uh, headquarters and for its various uh, uh, regional offices are interested in recruiting talent from there every year. And so they brought officials there to tell them about the job and traditionally that the recruitment pitch was you know you can change the world right uh, that we're making the world a better place to live you know the Cuyahoga River is no longer on fire you know LA you can see the mountains from downtown blah 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 right and um, 
you know, and please come work for us and see through our mission of making the world a greener and, you know, cleaner place, right? And uh, and so every year they'd get a handful of our best students that were going to the EPA. And one year they brought in a recruit and they had outsourced their recruiting to a private firm that was a recruitment firm. And all they talked about were material incentives. Hey, you'll never get fired. Uh, you know, it's good pay for environmental management. You know, uh, great retirement. Uh, you know, lots of, but, you know, appealed to other things, but not to the mission, right? You know, job stability, things like this, but not to the mission. And they got zero recruits that year. And uh, EPA came back, said what happened, and Spia told them, you know. Uh, well, it seemed that the students didn't really respond to this pitch. And so the following year, EPA brought back their, you know, their, their own in-house staff uh, to pitch based off of the mission, right? So uh, you can imagine that, you know, a lot of talent that would normally want to work for, you know, someone like the EPA sees the distortion of the mission of that organization. At the same time, you know, this is going to change president to president anyway, right? So I was just talking with uh, somebody from DHS yesterday and they said, you know, we feel free finally, you know, our enforcement actions are up considerably. Uh, to previous, uh, you know, to the previous administration, like we're free to do our job. We we were hamstrung in the previous administration, and so you know you'll get uh, people who are interested in in a career uh, in security or whatnot that uh, that are attracted to, you know, the autonomy that they that they would have during this administration, right? And uh, I mean, it, it's going to be based off of kind of the ideological or, or mission uh, alignment to the uh, to the presidency generally on an agency by agency basis. But uh, government as a whole, there's nothing that the shutdown could do to make things better <laughs> for our long-term strategic capital management. Yeah, yeah. One other point, I just, I know you brought it up in the, um, uh, briefly at the beginning of our discussion and in the article that you wrote. Um, but the effect of this on contractors and the way that they fit into the picture, I think maybe deserves just a, a little bit more attention. In particular, I wanted to bring up, I was, I was reading to get ready for this, um, a couple of different articles. And one of them was uh, giving some quotes from uh, a recent address that the head of, of NASA um, gave to his employees. And one of the things he talked about was that a lot of contractors who were doing work for NASA, um, some of them, I mean, all the contracts are sort of structured differently, you know, for that particular contract. So it's hard to make generalizations. So in some cases, the contractor had already been paid and the employees of the contractor were able to just go on working. But in some cases, people who'd been, you know, probably many of them sitting at desks right alongside federal government employees, um, some of them, the, the contracts were specified such that they couldn't continue to work or get paid during the shutdown. And so many of them were reassigned by their contractor to go work on other jobs. Many of them, I assume, in the federal government, but, but were reassigned to other areas and were not coming back to NASA once the shutdown ended. And mm -hmm. so um, just another example of how disruptive this can be because of the way that um, you know, some of this is structured with contractors where you have people, you know, one day working on on a project at NASA and then unexpectedly getting moved without any sort of transition, you know, training someone to replace them, just getting suddenly moved to another contract without any, um, you know, return or at least it planned return to come back to NASA and figure finish whatever they were working on. Um, and, and that was a, something I hadn't even, you know, I studied this kind of stuff. I hadn't even conceived of that problem until I came across that, that article, but. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know enough to really comment on that other than uh, I would be very wary as to where um, automated processes are going to be inserted into federal government, especially as a function of political negotiation, right? So this is all going to be appropriations, right, to decide where automation happens and where automation doesn't happen. And so when we talk about the fears of AI in the private sector in terms of introducing bias in the algorithms, right? And imagine the, uh, when you're, when you're, when you're uh, negotiating on uh, what types of biases might be underlying, you know, any automation within federal governments uh, between these two political parties currently. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think one area where there might be, you know, uh, some attraction, I'm not going to say a promise, but attraction to automating processes would be through uh, through contract uh, management in some respect, um, at least managing bidding processes, um, which I think is going to become even more problematic. We've got a good robust literature within uh, public administration on the concept of relational contracting that uh, shows that, you know, social capital, uh, dense social capital between uh, contract, uh, potential contractors and contract managers, uh, you know, leads to better outcomes in terms of uh, contracts generally. And so automating that type of process, I think just, you know, it just begs for, you know, gaming the system, right, uh, for promising things that you can't deliver. And then, uh, as we know, if there's already a, a, a crisis in um, talent uh, within our contract management ranks, right, uh, then what's going to happen is that, you know, you game the system, then we have sunk costs in who already won the contract, and then it, you know, just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of bad uh, yeah, bad management across the board. But anyway, that's a lot of speculation. I don't know. I'm not very, uh, yeah, I'm not very up on where automation might or might not happen within federal government. And then if we have a crisis capacity, I mean, a crisis in our in our skills gap uh, of STEM, then those building the algorithms might be of lesser quality generally than those uh, in the private sector. And so you can see how private sector actors in particular might be able to exploit whatever artificial intelligence or, or machine learning we put in place. I, I, I like to use machine learning because I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not convinced that uh, artificial intelligence is actually a capable thing. It, it just and it just sounds less iRobot, you know. I mean, you're not yeah, worried yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what's going to happen. Uh, that being said, you know, it's a it's a real thing, uh, and not uh, not diminishing uh, your point. I just uh, yeah, I, I'm just not skilled enough or, or knowledgeable enough in that area to respond. Well, and and to kind of tie two threads together that you were just discussing, I think um, you know. I oh, there's a good chance a lot of this would actually get contracted out, right? Developing a lot of these algorithms and stuff like that. But if you don't have the sort of in-house expertise at the IRS, you know, the, the people who know enough about, you know, machine learning or AI, whatever we want to call it, um, mm -hmm. to be able to 
effectively figure out what the IRS needs and to be able to effectively manage those contracts, right? Then you end up in a situation where there's not a lot of accountability for the contractors. And maybe the, the contractors do hire those really talented people, um, but the, the the government can't necessarily manage that contract effectively so that it actually meets their needs and they understand the limitations and, and, and benefits that they can get from using some sort of algorithm like that. Right. You know, at the end of the day, uh, wherever we might be in terms of the development of machine learning, uh, it's, I will stand by the idea that the most important capital that we can have within our federal government, neither fiscal, financial, or uh, intellectual, it's, it's first, first and foremost human capital, the talents, uh, the knowledge, skills, and, and assets that human beings bring into positions uh, providing institutional memory. Then the other things can flourish as a function of that, uh, as a function of that, but first and foremost, it's going to be human. And uh, right now, I think we're at an, an inflection point in our, uh, in our federal service generally, in terms of the ability to recruit and retain the talent necessary to maintain a functioning uh, state. Uh, doesn't mean that I think that you know we're at like the point of apocalypse or anything, but uh, but you know we have some serious problems that need to be addressed, and uh, and I don't think that the current political climate is doing anything uh, to help that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, I, I mean, you know, uh, in some respects, you know, they, they've had, the employees have had an opportunity to learn and to kind of update as a function of the last one, but not much time, right? And, uh, and I, I'd wonder how long that they'll stay on. I mean, I, I, I still have faith, but it's completely and utterly based off of faith. It has nothing to do with, uh, you know, any insight that I have special to anyone else. But I do have uh, some faith that those people that are interested in maintaining, uh, you know, the institutional integrity of their agencies and the missions and whatnot are, are really and uh, but are ready for retirement or whatnot are are you know uh sticking around at least through the next election because they want to you know they they want to protect their legacies they want to protect their institution they have an identity that they've built uh through their career with those given agencies so uh all is not lost but uh yeah this certainly doesn't help Yeah, so uh, my Twitter handle is at Bill Resch, B-I-L-L-R-E-S-H. Um, yeah, I'm pretty frequent on Twitter. Um, and uh, I also, yes, I wrote a book in, uh, it was published at the end of 2015. It's called Rethinking the Administrative Presidency. And it's about uh, many of the topics that we've touched on today. Uh, uh, specifically, however, I look at the relationships that develop between political presidential appointees and the career senior executive service and how those relationships are critical uh, in terms of uh, the president's ability to see through uh, their policy preferences through administrative means. That is like the, their success in kind of reorganizing agencies, their success in redefining missions, their success in seeing through their policy preferences through the bureaucracy is largely going to be a function of 
uh, an appointee's ability to leverage the existing institutional capacity that they find through senior executive service. And I don't think that the current president is doing a very good job at this uh, based off of past evidence. And so uh, those who worry that this is, you know, that this presidency is run amok and will run our constitution off the rails, I, I tell you, please don't, don't fret too much. You know, we, uh, the ability to, you know, see through all the, uh, uh, necessary constitutional principles that are uh, woven into our administrative states uh, can be uh, over overlooked if you're not managing capably. And so a lot of their initiatives are being caught up in the courts. And so uh, fret, fret not too much, but you know, still be concerned, stay vigilant, stay icy. Um, I think that's the only optimistic thing any of us have said today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also want to tell you that I'm I'm working on a book that uh, includes some analysis on the shutdown. Um, I, I call it out of pocket public service. Um, it's going to be looking at uh, the the concept that we um, that we rely um, at least marginally as an electorate, but our political class in particular relies at least marginally on the notion that public servants uh, are willing to uh, go the extra mile on behalf of uh, public interest. And therefore, many times they exploit that. Um, and such that you get teachers paying out of pocket for classroom materials, such that you get uh, federal workers willing to go without a paycheck for a substantial amount of time. And I think that it's something that, uh, that we haven't adequately addressed in both political science and public administration. And so that's the focus of my next book. So I'm plugging something that probably won't be in print for another two to three years, but uh, it's called Out of Pocket Public Service. <laughs> Thanks, fellas, for having me. And Nathan, I'll see you in March. I'll see you in March. All right. See you guys. <laughs>